Oh, we need Jesus. Amen. So good to have you here. And uh, thanks for worshiping and singing from your heart. Hey, one thing I wanted to mention, expand a little bit on what, on what Jeremiah said. The women's retreat, November 15th through 17th, the sign-ups to let them know you're interested in that are at the coffee break table. You'll see signs that say women's retreat, November 15th through 17th. Let them know that you're considering going. Uh, sign up for more information. Uh, it's going to be a great time. Octavia Lewis, who is married to Joe, you know, Joe Lewis, the boxer. Uh, she is married to his son. And she's an author, speaks around the world, and it's going to be our speaker at the women's retreat. You don't want to miss it. She's amazing. Stephanie Moody, a bunch of ladies are organizing it. So uh, please sign up. Let me have a word of prayer as we get into God's word this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are awesome. And you're right here with us. Thank you, God, that we have freedom in you. That by faith in you, our sins were nailed to the cross. With you, we've been set free. And we worship you today. We love you, Jesus. You created us. You made us. You stamped your image upon us. And we are so grateful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're in a series entitled, uh, Questions by Jesus. Last week, we talked about, Do you love me more than these? The restoration of Peter. Today, I want to talk about this. What is written in the law? And this question is all about Jesus' commitment to the Word of God. That's what I love about Jesus. He modeled that for us. So every one of us as believers needs to understand why we hold this book to be so valuable in our walk with Christ. And I was just in a conversation yesterday. My wife was there with one of our neighbors who said, Oh, Mel, my sister, she grew up in the church, but she doesn't believe the Bible anymore. What do I say to her? And I was like, well, that's exactly what I'm preaching on. Here, let me give you my 45-minute sermon right here. No, I didn't say that to her. But I gave her some stuff and some information and some facts. And obviously prayer, right? Because with some people, no matter how powerful the evidence is, they will not believe. They, they refuse to believe. But I believe with all my heart. Like creation, right? I'm a big believer in looking at the Word of God find out how creation happened, but also the scientific evidence behind an amazing God designer that created it all. And for me, the step of faith to believe that there is a God that created everything is such a small step of faith when you look at all the evidence behind it. But to somehow believe that all of this came about in an atheistic, non-directed way, that to me is a huge leap of faith to believe that. I don't have enough faith to be an atheistic evolutionist. I have so much faith in a God who created this world and you and me with his power and is sustaining it even today. That to me is a small step of faith. And I, I want that same approach to the Bible. I believe it's a very small step of faith to believe that there was divine involvement behind the production of this book. It's a huge leap of faith to doubt that God was not in the steps that were involved in bringing this book about. It's a huge leap of faith. And the evidence is powerful. And I want you to have the tools in your tool belt for why we believe the Word of God to be the Word of God. The bottom line is this. Jesus had tremendous confidence in the Word of God. 
and was constantly referring to it in his teaching and mentoring. Now remember, he was the living Logos of God. He was the Word of God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus could have answered all of the questions that were asked of him by his own authority. But what he did was model for us, turn to the Word. Look into God's Word. Find the answers to the big questions in life in the Word of God. Don't doubt it. He had tremendous confidence in the Word of God. We should have that same confidence and be able to defend it with the unbelieving critics and skeptics. I had a guy about a week and a half ago say to me, why does God need you to defend him? What do you think I said? He doesn't. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need me for anything. I need to defend him. I need to grow in my faith so that I can clearly explain the reasons for my faith. And I want to tell you what happens in your life and in mine. The more you find out what the answers are to the questions of this world about belief in God and about this being the Word of God, the deeper you will grow in your faith, the more you'll understand it, the more confidence you will have in your faith. I need it. And yet the Word of God tells us, be always ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. To anyone who asks, God doesn't need me. But I have grown so much, and I know you would have the same testimony as well. Grown so much as you have learned the facts and the evidence behind our faith. Like it, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. But before we read that passage, I want to show you a five-minute video that gives us an overview of how the Bible came about. It's a great summary, and I think it's important for us to lay that foundation. So let's watch this video now, then we'll turn to Luke chapter 10. Today we can find the Bible almost anywhere. It's at our local bookstore, in hotel rooms, at home on our coffee table, and even on our cell phones. We can read literal translations, paraphrase versions, and anything in between. I mean, we have over 20 different translations just in the English language. But it hasn't always been that way. Back in the beginning. Yeah. Way back there. The beginning. Stories were passed down from generation to generation orally. And each generation took extreme care to make sure that every detail was preserved and not embellished. It wasn't until 1400 B.C. that God inspired Moses to begin actually writing down the first five books of the Bible. And over the next 1500 years, he inspired around 40 other godly men from three different continents and many different languages to write books of poetry, prophecy, history, instruction, and first-hand accounts of Jesus' life and to what we know as the 66 books of the Bible. So that's the end, right? Actually, no, not quite. Now that God had inspired these 66 books, somebody had to put them all together and make sure that no non-God-inspired books made the cut. Enter the Council of Jamnia. In 90 AD, this group of scholars examined scripture based on a strict set of guidelines whereby a given text must be historically accurate, written by a great patriarch, and not be in conflict with other scripture. With these guidelines and under God's direction, they confirm the 39 books that make up our Old Testament. 
By 250 AD, Christianity fell under great persecution, and in 303, Rome ordered that all Christian books be destroyed. But this effort was not successful thanks to the many Christians who gave their lives to save and protect these scriptures. By 367, there were quite a bit of letters and stories circulating about the life of Jesus and about how Christians were supposed to live. So once again, a group met, this time called the Council of Carthage, in order to determine which books and letters were actually written by apostles or their closest companions. The ones that met this criteria make up what we know as the 27 books of the New Testament. Through the next thousand years, a period known as the Dark Ages occurred. Oh, and Europe fell into great unrest. That's better. Reading and learning were discouraged, but God stayed faithful to his word and kept it alive through a group of men who lived secluded lives known as monks. Now these guys were serious about their jobs. They worked long hours in little light and uncomfortable conditions, writing out each word by hand. And when they were done with each page, they would count every letter to ensure accuracy. Man, talk about putting love into your work. In the 1300s, at the dawn of the Renaissance, there was a renewed interest in art, science, history, and theology. Unfortunately, the Bible was only available to the priesthood in a language only they understood. A man named John Wycliffe thought that scripture should be available to all people, so he began translating the Latin Old Testament to English. By this point, people were desperate for the Bible, but copies were rare, expensive, and took years to be written out. By 1450, Johann Gutenberg, you've heard the name, he was developing a way to mass copy books on what he called a printing press. It took five years to position all the movable type letters, but after all that time, he successfully produced the first print copy of the Bible in Latin. This sudden influx of Bibles created a demand for a fully English version, and in 1535, we had one, thanks to William Tyndale, who started the work for which he was burned at the stake, and Miles Coverdale, who finished the job. 30 years later, a group of Bible scholars in Switzerland broke the Bible into its numbered verses. Thanks, guys. And the first King James Version came along 50 years later. Biblical scholars have continued to translate the original Hebrew and Greek scriptures into today's language and for people all over the world. So, the next time you pick up your Bible, remember the amazing sacrifices and the great links that God has gone to to bring you this text. Amen. Isn't that good? So that gives you a, a brief summary of how we got the Bible in this form today. Let's open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. And I want to read this passage to you. says this in verse 25 and behold a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test saying teacher what shall I do to inherit eternal life that's a big question isn't it the biggest question of life how do I have eternal life how do I get it Jesus said to him what is written in the law how do you read it and he answered you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your strength and with all your mind 
and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus was confronted with this question, how do I get eternal life? He could have given the answer, but he modeled for us what we should do when we face questions in our life. And that is turn to the word of God. Every one of the major questions of life are found, answers found in the word of God. I refer to that as the, the sufficiency of God's word. God's word answers all of these major questions. How do I get eternal life? His answer was the two great commandments. It's those two great commandments from which we get our motto here at Riverview Church, a passion for loving God and loving others. If you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you have a passion for loving God. Most of us aren't there yet, right? Most of us are still working on it, but that is the goal. That's the desire. And out of that love should flow a love for others, to love your neighbor as yourself two great commandments. Jesus loved the word of God. That's my first point. It's this. Jesus had total confidence in the word of God. You'll notice the notes are a little different today. I don't want you to have to worry about filling in any blanks because I want you to have that information there and for you to have this information in your tool belt ready to go when you have a discussion about the Bible. Christian, for all of us that are here today who believe in Jesus, our view of Scripture should mirror the view that Jesus had of Scripture. Why is that? Well, because as God's Son, the second person of the Trinity, which is exactly who Jesus is, Jesus is the last and final word on matters of faith and practice. So therefore, whatever Jesus taught settles that for us settles the issue so we want to find out what was jesus view of the old testament obviously the new testament had not been written yet when jesus said these things he's talking about the old testament but he had great confidence in the word of god i think i told you about that guy uh, a few weeks ago that i met at a restaurant with my wife and he was sitting there and we had this conversation and do you remember i said that he told me he used to, he used to go to church but now he's taking a little bit of this religion, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, and a little bit of that to make his own faith. And what I said to him was this. I said, you know, you can do that. You have the freedom to do that. But you need to know that your views are in contradiction to the views of Jesus Christ. And I think that's a very dangerous place to be. Why? I told him. Because Jesus died and rose again. Everyone who believes differently than Jesus will die and stay dead. We've talked about that a lot here at Riverview. And I said this to him. I've said it here as well. I choose to follow the one who died and what? Rose again. Exactly. I told that to him. I don't want to follow people that died and stayed dead. I want to follow the one that died and rose again. And when he said that he has power over death, he proved it and backed it up. So we should have great confidence in his view of the word of God. We should, as followers of Jesus, therefore mirror his view of the word of God and the confidence he had in it. See, Jesus' view of scripture is this, that it has answers to the important questions of life. They are found in God's word. He could have told the lawyer, hey, let me tell you what it is. I can tell you the answer. He didn't do that. So what do the scriptures say? 
What does the law say? What does the Bible say? We have a group of lay counselors here at Riverview. They're wonderful people. They've been trained in biblical counseling. What does that mean? It means this, that the Word of God is sufficient and, and it has authority in every area of our life. So we focus on biblical counseling. It doesn't matter what my answer to a problem is. What matters is what's God's answer. Let's be sure, not in a way that comes across like we're Bible-thumping people, right? But what does the Bible say about this problem? What's the answer? It's found right here in the Word of God. Why? Because we have tremendous confidence that what you're holding in your hand, if you have a Bible with you, is actually what it claims to be the very Word of God. Let me give you a few verses. I'll give you more than these two, but these two are powerful. Matthew 5.18, Jesus said this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota. That's the smallest mark in the Hebrew language is what Jesus was referring to. Not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus affirmed that every promise in the Old Testament, every prophecy in the Old Testament will come to pass. He went on to say this in Luke 24, 44. Jesus said to them, this is what I told you when I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. He included all three sections of the Old Testament. Everything about me is going to be fulfilled. Can you imagine being a Jew and hearing those words? Wait a minute, Jesus, are you saying that the Old Testament, throughout it all, talks about you? It points to you? Ding, ding, ding. Absolutely, you win the prize. That's exactly what he was teaching. It all points to him. And when he has confidence in the word of God, we should as well. Jesus said this in John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So when Jesus gives authority to the Old Testament, we should have that same view of God's Word. Matthew 5, 17 says this, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to what? Fulfill them. My hope and prayer is you are in awe of that. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill every part of it. Now, we know that every prophecy made about his first coming came to pass. That should give you tremendous confidence in the Word of God. We're going to talk about that next week. This is a multi-week study. But beyond that, beyond that, it all pointed to him. He would fulfill it all. There are more promises to come about his second coming. He will fulfill all of that as well. Don't doubt it. The same God that could create 400 billion galaxies will fulfill every promise he has made. That verse that we read earlier, I love what Jesus said after. He said, everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said, thus it is written, 
that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's why we here at Riverview love having our Bibles open. That's why I love saying, let's go back to the text. Thus it is written. This is what the Bible says. It doesn't matter. My opinion means nothing. May I never preach my opinion. May I always preach things that come out of the authoritative Word of God, the supremacy of the Word of God, meaning that it has authority over every other book that's ever been written on this planet because God inspired it. He wrote it, and you can have confidence in that. Jesus kept referring to the Old Testament, modeling for us what we should do with our Bibles to believe in them. When the issue came up about family, Jesus was authoritative about it. Why? He pointed to the Scriptures. He said this in Matthew 19. Jesus answered, Have you not read the Scriptures? Haven't you read right here? It says the answer is right in the Bible. Right here. That he who created them from the beginning made them what? male and female and said therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh Jesus clearly laid out what God's plan for marriage and family is right there it comes right out of the word of God he's modeling for us that all the important questions of life find their answer in God's word in uh, Nazareth Jesus went to the synagogue his hometown you know, a prophet is without honor in his own country, right? But he went back to Nazareth where he was raised as a carpenter's son. He went to the synagogue. And there it was his turn to read from the Old Testament. And he got up in the synagogue, opened the scroll, and read a passage about the coming of the Messiah. Then the Bible says, he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. You might say, well, why did, they, why did that happen? Why were they looking at Jesus? Well, because in Jewish tradition, when you read from God's word, you stood up and read as a sign of respect for the word of God. When a rabbi or a teacher would teach from the Word of God, the teacher would sit down as a sign of submission to the Word of God. Here, if somebody sits down after reading the Bible, you don't keep looking at them. In the synagogue, that meant Jesus just read a Messianic passage. He sat down. He's going to teach from that passage. And this is what he said. Can you imagine being there in the synagogue that day a messianic passage being read from the old testament jesus sitting down to teach from it and saying today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing how did they respond by the way they wanted to kill him they wanted to kill him for saying that but it was absolutely true he was the messiah who had come to set us free and he proved it by dying and rising again. You might say, well, what about the New Testament, Mel? Well, the apostles had that same confidence in their writings as being Scripture. They had that same confidence. I've had people refer to this verse that I'm about to show you as a verse that says, you know, hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to remember everything that Jesus told me in the Word. But I, I, this passage specifically is a promise to the disciples People have come to me and said, Mel, come on. The people that wrote the New Testament, they wrote it 40, 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus said all these things. How could they ever remember it accurately? 
Where do you think I turn? I turn to the Bible. John 14, 26. A promise made specifically to the disciples and those that would write God's word in the New Testament. This is what Jesus said. John 14, 26. But when the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you how many things? All things. Wow. I would have been intimidated too as a disciple. Wait a minute. How do I, how do I remember all the things that Jesus taught us? How do I communicate accurately the truths that God wants his people to know? Hey, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance how much? All that I have said to you. See, there is this promise of the inspiration of God's word. Jesus promising that there would be this amazing divine help in writing the New Testament made to his disciples. That should give us great confidence. In fact, Paul called his own words in 1 Corinthians 14, the commandments of the Lord. He said this in 1 Thessalonians, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. They had this sense of being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter. We're running out of time. We've got to do this next week too, but I want you to have this evidence. 2 Peter. That's after James, right? Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation. 1st, 2nd Peter, chapter 1. Here's the passage. Page 10, 000, uh, 1018 in your Bible. Now, uh, if you're like me, I've had memories in my walk with Christ that are highlights, mountaintop experiences. Peter had them too. He talks about one here in this passage. And I thought, man, if I experienced what Peter's, uh, we're about to read about, if I experienced this, my faith would be really strong. Let's read about it. Peter says this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's saying this. Listen, guys, we didn't make this up. And one of the great defenses of the fact that they didn't make this up is that all of the 12 disciples became what for their Christian faith? What happened to them? All martyred. If they made it up, believe me, one or two or three or six or ten would have denied it. Hey, uh, we were just kidding, man. It wasn't really true. It didn't happen. Please don't kill me. Please don't crucify me upside down. But not one recanted. Not one. Peter's saying, we didn't make this stuff up. We saw it. We saw his majesty. When did that happen? And a voice was born to him. It began, it emanated from the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice emanating, born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. What do we call that event here that, that he's talking about? The what? Transfiguration, right? The time when Jesus was with Peter, James, and John. And he became, the Bible says, as bright as a flash of lightning. Wow. Who was standing with him, talking with him, when he was as bright as lightning? Moses and Elijah. Remember that? So Peter said, man, we saw it. We were there. He would end up giving his life for what happened, dying upside down, crucified on a cross. He says this, 
verse 19, and we have something more sure. When I read that, I'm like, wow, Peter, I mean, that's a mountaintop experience. If I had that, I would never doubt again. Peter says, you know what, there's something more exciting than even that mountaintop experience I had with Jesus, seeing him as bright as a flash of lightning. What it is, is the word of God. We have something more sure than that. This is what he says. The prophetic word, verse 19, to which you will do well to pay attention to, as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, what should we know first of all, Peter? Tell us. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own misinterpretation. Now, I said I misspoke there for a second because I met a priest one time, and he misinterpreted this verse. Oh, let me read again. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And a priest and I were discussing the Bible one time and reading it, and he said to me, Mel, People should not read the Bible on their own. Only a priest can read and interpret the Bible for them. And I said, where do you get that from the Bible? He pointed to this verse. He opened his Bible and pointed to this verse. He said this, no a prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own mis- uh, interpretation. <laughs> he misinterpreted this verse. I said, that's not what this verse is talking about. You've taken it totally out of context. What Peter is talking about is that Isaiah, for example, when he made prophecies about the coming of Christ, he didn't say, you know what? I've got a a slow day today. I'm going to write a book and make my own prophecies about what's going to happen in the future. I've got some wisdom. I'm going to interpret the world events that are going on, and I'm going to write down some amazing prophecies. Peter said that never happened. They never did it as a matter of their own interpretation. Go on to the next verse. Makes it ultimately extremely clear. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God used these writers of Scripture to write down exactly what He intended to communicate. And as they wrote, they were carried along, kind of like at the airports when you go there and they have those moving sidewalks, you know. You're you're walking along on the regular pavement, all of a sudden you hit the moving sidewalk, and all of a sudden you're going like this down, and you're carried along. I love those moving sidewalks. That's what the writers of Scripture were like. They were kind of, they sensed they were being carried along as they wrote, yes, in their own writing style, But they knew something very special was happening. Paul said, these are the commandments of the Lord. These are not the words of men. These are the words of the Lord. And please don't misinterpret that verse like that priest did who said, this tells you not to read and interpret Scripture. That's not what it's saying. No prophecy generated itself out of the will of man, but it came from God through these writers of Scripture. See, Peter included Paul's writings in 2 Peter chapter 3 with the other scriptures. He referred to Paul's writings and the other scriptures. He saw Paul's writings as scripture. Peter placed himself and the fellow apostles on the same level as Old Testament prophets. John claimed to write information in Revelation 1.1 given to him by God. So something special was happening. Something amazing. 
And the bottom line is this. As we look at the truth of God's word, no other book or collection of writings is as nearly significant, profoundly influential, and endured over the centuries in spite of periods of all-out persecution. Often a predetermined bias, uh, the person who says, I don't care what the evidence is, I will never believe the Bible is the word of God. And I get that. I've met people like that. But for me, like I said before, much smaller step of faith to believe that God was behind the writing of this book than to, which to me is a huge leap of faith, deny any divine involvement in the Bible. The facts are powerful. We're going to talk about it more next week. But often a predetermined bias or ignorance or misinformation has kept people from realizing that no man or series of human beings could have put this together. There is nothing to compare it with, nothing that comes close to the depth, the width, the height, and the breadth of this book called the Bible. And we certainly don't want to say more about the Bible than the Bible says about itself. But over 3,000 times, the Bible calls itself the Word of God. And I get it. People have said to me, well, Mel, that's circular reasoning. The, you believe the Bible is the Word of God because the Bible says it's the Word of God. It's not the only reason I believe it. But if the Bible said, hey, this isn't the Word of God, please don't, don't, don't say that it is, then I wouldn't. But what I'm saying about the Word of God and what we are talking about today is exactly the opinion Jesus had of the Word of God and that it says that it is the Word of God 3,000 times. But, but we're going to do this next week. We're going to get into it. The evidence supports having total confidence in the Word of God. And I'm going to use an acronym, MAP. We're going to talk about manuscripts, archaeology, and prophecy. Evidence that all of you should have a little bit of when you have discussions with people who say, Oh, man, the Bible, antiquated book, full of errors. It's been changed over the years. What do you say? I want to give you the tools to say to them, that is not true. You've heard a lie. Let me tell you, through manuscripts, through archaeology, and through prophecy, why I have total confidence in the Bible being the Word of God. These 66 books that took 1,600 years to write in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, with 40 authors... Think about the Koran. How many authors wrote the Koran? One. If you research, uh, Muslims will say that the Koran has been amazingly preserved and no changes have ever been made to the Koran. That's not true. There have been many changes made to the Koran over the years to correct contradictions in the Koran. And that was one author that wrote the Koran. Can you imagine 40 authors in three different continents over 1,600 years putting together a Bible with 66 different books, yet this is ultimately true. It is consistent throughout. It has a consistent message throughout with no contradictions. The message is consistent. So next week when we come back, we're going to learn more evidence that you can use as you share with people why you believe the Bible to be this amazing gift God has given us, the very Word of God. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray together. As your heads are bowed today, I hope you can say, Lord, thank you for, the, for your word. Thank you for this amazing gift. You know when a sparrow falls to the ground and it makes sense to believe that you were intimately involved in the production of this amazing book we hold in our hands. You 
weren't twiddling your fingers in heaven, God, worried about how will I ever get my communication down to earth. You were involved in it all from the beginning. And we believe that you've given us this amazing gift. Jesus, thank you for the confidence that you had in the word of God. We want to have that same confidence. And we love you today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together and sing this song.